0: everyone welcome to the unhandled exception podcast this is show number eight and today's episode is all about identity and i am thrilled to be joined by christos matskas program manager for the microsoft identity team and according to his about page on his website his goal in life is to become great at his job be an excellent husband and father and also to be a geeky geek so a huge massive welcome to the show christos and i'm really curious what is a geeky geek <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, the the geek to rule all geeks, I suppose? I don't know. I, I spend most of my time writing code and having fun and tinkering with uh, software and hardware, so I suppose that this makes me geek.
0: <laughs> it's a great term. I'm going to start using it, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, it can be uh, more geek than a geek. I, I used to say that uh, geeks will inherit the earth, and apparently these days, having a CS degree or, or knowing how to uh, deal with programming is, is a very important thing, or programming, IT pros, security networks, whatever. It's all interesting, at least in my head.
0: I don't know if you remember, but we very first met at one of the DDD conferences quite a few years ago now. I think you were doing a talk on Azure Functions.
1: God, so that must have been 2016 or 2017. I seem to remember it being a grok talk. I mean, I, I would grab any opportunity to talk about stuff. So, you know, I would drive all the way down to, uh, you know, the south of England just to get the opportunity to talk about the stuff I was passionate (laughs) about. So uh, I would not be surprised if I drove all the way down there for 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: remember it being definitely a good talk. And then you've done a few Oxford talks as well, like joining us at Oxford. Yes. Uh, I think you've uh, you've one in person when you lived in the UK. And then Mm -hmm. uh, I think two months ago, you did one virtually on, funnily enough, identity.
1: Yeah, funny enough about identity. But uh, back in my, uh, it, when I was back in the UK, one of the last roles I had was working as a PFE for Microsoft. And that meant I would go around customers and help them with problems and uh, solve issues. So uh, if I was around the area, I would ping uh, one of the meetup organizers and ask whether they wanted to, uh, to do a session because I would be all the way, let's say I was near London or, or near Oxford. I would ping somebody that has a .net meetup or a cloud meetup and say yeah I'll be I'll be seeing a customer in the morning do you fancy doing a, a talk in the afternoon if the the time and the schedule fits uh, because I I'm already there and I'm not flying home I might as well uh, meet new people and uh, spread the love there you go
0: How are you finding it now everything's things virtual
1: Well I think I don't mind uh, Obviously it's it's a lot more challenging to have an engaging session especially since you can't see everybody else in the room. So if you say something that flies over their head or it's difficult to comprehend, it's very hard to uh, to get that kind of reaction and then maybe reiterate on the on the subject. Also you can ask questions like how many of you here have done this and wait for a, a, a number of raised hands. Uh, obviously the chat works but not everyone engages in the chat as well. And then the other challenge for the speaker, obviously, is keeping everybody engaged. And I know that uh, I'm not one of the most gifted speakers, so it always adds pressure to make sure that you deliver something and that people stay there for 45 minutes. And I also find that uh, people have had you know, Zoom saturation or team saturation or whatever other software organizers are using. So people can't really stay as focused as in the older days where you were in person. But at the other hand, it's super positive because I've done speaks with Singapore, Australia, uh, you guys in the UK, all over the world without me having to leave the comfort of my office. So I find, it, I find that the opportunities are greater because we can deliver to a lot wider audience. At the same time, the challenge is that everyone is on online now and attention spans are hard to maintain. Yeah, definitely. I
0: think especially when people have been at the computers all day long working from home and then... It gets to the end of the day and then staying on the computers to attend these events.
1: Also, with the computers, it's very hard to uh, divert your attention to something else. So an email has arrived or I just remember I need to copy something. So you divert your attention from the session to something else. If you're in the room, it's very rare that you'll get people playing on the laptops while you're doing a session. Although that's not unheard of, and I've done conference talks where half the audience were just typing on the computer, hoping that they're doing what you're doing on stage, but they could be answering emails for work. Mm. It's pros and cons, as opposed to everything.
0: Yeah, definitely. So we're going to talk about identity today, and obviously mm-hmm. we're going to talk about Microsoft Identity Platform as part of this episode, but I'm also really keen on spending a bit of time on just demystifying identity in general. Yes. There's lots of terms floating around like that I think a lot of devs don't really understand, like OAuth, OpenID Connect, scopes, claims, mm. JOT, or JWT tokens, ID tokens, access tokens, refresh tokens and lots more. <laughs> so I don't know how we're gonna cover Where do you this. start? Exactly. How we're gonna cover all of this in what, one episode. But if we can actually just well maybe we just start with what identity is mm-hmm. in the first place.
1: Yeah, uh, these days, identity, I mean, I mean, identity hasn't changed, to be honest. Identity is, explains who I am or what I can do in the system. And in the past, it was very different because everybody was in a LAN, everybody was in their own network, there was no cloud. Uh, so you would go into the office, turn on your PC, and then you were automatically domain joined, you were designed in, everybody knew who you were. And uh, for developers writing applications, it was just as simple as doing a, a call, to work out who the currently used uh, user is signed in. So that was simple back in the, the good old days of LANs and intranets. But now with things moving to the cloud, now with uh, you know the web, the proliferation of the web, online shopping and what have you, we need to f- have a way to identify who the user is when they come into our system. And unless you're writing a marketing site that just has information that you don't really interact with, Everything else uh, that you use today has to have some kind of a notion of identity, whether it's a line of business app that you're using from your VPN at home, whether it's shopping with, you know, Costco, Chefway, you know, House of Fraser, whatever, whatever you want to buy online. You need to have a profile that explains who you are and also retain some profile information so the, the retailer can dispatch. Your goods and they can interact with you and provide a customized experience. So identity is everywhere. You can't really interact with anything on the web without having an identity. And that's, that's, that's where we start. We need to find a way to validate that you are who you say you are, like a driver's license when you're presented, you need to present some identity in physical form. Online, obviously, there's, there's a much bigger challenge because you need to have a way to prove who you say you are and the only way to do that is for both parties, the me, the user and you the owner of the software, whatever it is, need to have a common kind of a source of information that is the, the actual truth with a physical identities uh, you trust the, the government to issue a passport and you use that passport and both parties accept that the government is right in this instance. With online, uh, we use identity providers that we trust, and we hope that they uh, you know, they provide the right information, whether that's Microsoft or some other vendor. The, the assumption there is that because we're both using the same system, I trust that you are who you say you are, and off we go. So that's the, that's the new format of online identities. We have a common backend system that verifies to both parties that I am who you say you are, and you are the site I'm supposed to be using, and we take it from there.
0: I guess you've also got the, not just you are who you say you are, but once we've verified that, what is that person allowed to do?
1: Correct. Authentication and authorization. So uh, authentication is where I prove that I am who I say I am. And then based on that information can define what I can do in your system. Usually that's down to the identity provider or the, the person that manages the identity system to provide the right permissions to me. So if I am a user buying something from Costco, then the only thing I can do is buy stuff and edit my profile. But if I log in as an admin, then I might also have access. So if, my, if I am a Costco user, but also a Costco admin, I might have a different way to sign in in order to be able to uh, edit settings inside the system. So uh, that, that is all dependent on how you configure your authorization within your app, and there are different ways to do that.
0: Yeah, I guess where you mentioned about identity provider as well, mm-hmm. uh, I think this was something in, in our notes we were going to cover a bit later on. But that probably leads nicely on to the concept of, I know back in the olden days, you'd store username and password yes. in your own database and you do it all yourself, <laughs> DIY. But then, like nowadays, that's not recommended, I don't think, it's
1: I mean, there's nothing wrong in using a super secure system to store that information. Unfortunately, the, the challenge there is knowing what you're doing. There's a whole lot of RFCs and um, documentation and libraries that you need to be aware of in order to be able to implement a super robust system. And since it's so complicated, most of the developers that try to roll their own authentication system, I, I'm, I'm one of them, uh, screwed up some way. Uh, and it's not just a simple, hey, I'm going to store a username and a password. It's also all the things that come around that identity and how you manage it. Things like multi-factor authentication, things like conditional access, things like how do I protect my website from brute force attacks? How do I protect my website from DDoS? How do I protect my website from rainbow attacks against my database if that ever gets hacked? So as a developer, you don't only have to think about just a simple UI of username and password. It's password resets. It's... You know, how do I edit my profile? And it creates a whole heap of work. If you ever had to do it yourself, you'll know that it is super involved. You need a number of services like email and SMS. You need a way to validate that nobody has actually hacked that uh, URL that you sent to an email to uh, try to obtain access to another profile. So uh, it starts very simple and then it becomes very, very complex. Incremental backoff. So, you know, people don't really try to brute force passwords because they, they went into Troy Hunt's database and found all these emails that they can export right and because people uh, they like to use the same habits over and over again they fall into the fallacy of using the same passwords and hopefully everyone is using password managers these days but since they're not it's easy for a a dump from another hack to uh, be reused and try to do attacks against Facebook and Twitter profiles so there's nothing wrong in implementing your own identity system if you know what you're doing but if you don't have to if you don't know what you're doing then we do provide you things out of the box and we do provide i mean the the, the market has solutions for you the other thing that you don't have to think about if you're using a delegated authentication provider like azure AD is the fact that uh, you don't have to worry about scalability right you implement the solution once and then you don't have to worry about where my database is going to end up how is it going to grow with my users imagine you have a super successful business you start with 10 users and suddenly within a month. Uh, you become viral. Everybody's coming to your site. So now you have 1 million users that you have to manage. That database is to grow and you have to manage it and back it up and make sure that it doesn't get compromised or whatever. And assuming that everything is secure, you still have to worry about scalability. With uh, Azure AD, we do 30 billion authentications a day. Wow. That's an insane amount of authentication that you never have to think about as a developer. I had to check with marketing because I was not <laughs> quite sure that the number was right. I'm like, are you sure it's not like 3 billion or maybe, you know, trillion or a million uh, and they were like yeah that's 30 billion Uh, that's that's the marketing information that you can provide publicly i was like wow that is insane even for me working at identity so there you have it do not roll your own authentication unless you really really know what you're doing and we have 1500 engineers working day in day out to make sure you don't have to do it yourself
0: that is crazy and I'm going back to about DIY and yes. you mentioned about a password reset page mm-hmm. and you also mentioned about Troy hunt. I can't remember what it was a blog post he wrote or a plural site course he did years ago. I remember reading something where he was talking about all the things you can get wrong in just a password reset page and not yeah. just one element. And there was a lot of stuff to think about in just that one side. So when you add all the things you spoke about, you just don't want to do it
1: yourself. No, it takes days, day, day, days, weeks, uh, and that's assuming that you know what OpenID Connect and OAuth and, two are, and how to handle tokens, how to encrypt them, how to sign them, how to create HMACs, and whatever. And uh, it's it's a lot of complex work. And to be honest, nobody finds that an exciting type of work. Like you, as a developer, you're presented with ten tasks up front, and identity is one of these tasks. You don't want to be spending three weeks trying to implement that, right? You want to be dump one library, delegate that to somebody else, and then move on to the other tasks, especially when security comes into play. Because once you get hacked, then it's, it's very, very hard to gain customer trust again.
0: I think another advantage, which I've just discovered recently, for one of the projects I'm working on, I started to look at GDPR.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And I realized that because we're using an identity provider, a managed identity provider, that we're actually not storing any personal data whatsoever in the database that i'm working with yep. that we're building it's all just delegated off so actually i don't need to worry about gdpr for my project really it's just yes. all handed off
1: correct yeah and obviously it depends on on the solution but in uh, in btc for example you can also define your custom fields that you can store so it doesn't mean that you're not uh, you don't have to worry about gdpr it just means that inside your own databases, you don't have to worry about, you know, in, in that information. And for, for people to try to understand why and how it's the same as doing, um, delegated customer payments. Like you use a payment getaway to process the payment for you when somebody buys something of you. So you don't have to start the, the credit card information. So if you ever get hacked, all the information they get is like a, a GUID code that points to some transaction that happened in the payment provider. And it's exactly the same for authentication. You just get. Some token information and a GUI that matches your, you know, the user ID, and you never ever have to worry about storing that information.
0: Nice. Mm-hmm. You did mention about understanding OAuth and OpenID Connect, and shall we shall we delve in and roll our sleeves up? And, and by our, I mean <laughs> like yours, I mean obviously. But
1: <laughs> sure, yeah, let, let's let's delve into protocols because everyone <laughs> is super excited about protocols. We, we, and I, to be honest, I don't really have too much in depth knowledge about how these protocols work because, again, I delegate that to my engineering team to worry about these things. But at the very high level, OAuth 2 is a protocol that allows you to securely exchange tokens, right? Uh, access tokens. So it says this system can access this resource at the back end, and that's described in a, in a JSON web token or JOT or JWT. My my partner in crime JP always gets triggered when I say JOT because he's like there's no O in the JWT, but in the RFC they also say you can pronounce it as JOT. So uh, if I want to trigger him any point at any point, I just throw that word. So JWT tokens. Um, so OAUTH two defines the the protocols or the the sequence of exchanges between the identity provider and two systems or multiple systems that need to exchange tokens. So uh, I know that if I have a front end single page application that needs to access an API then I, I can pass an access token and both parties know what that is and then at uh, the back of that if that API needs to access all the other resources then we, we may need to acquire on behalf of the user another token and then do those calls so there's a whole flow of OAuth 2.0. The problem with OAuth 2.0 was that it had no way to validate the user it could also only say what you can do with the system it couldn't say who you were so OpenID Connect is an extension of OAuth 2, which built on top of OAuth 2, is the next iteration, and allows us to acquire ID tokens. And ID tokens are what developers are looking at when they try to validate who you are. So every application, at the very minimum, will have an ID token. So uh, the user signs in, the identity provider, spits out an, an OpenID Connect token, you get that token, and now I know who you are, and you know who I am, and you can look at that token and do the necessary. Next is via OAuth2, obviously we also may acquire, that's not necessary. If it's just a static website that doesn't do anything else, that's fine. But if you need to access other resources, now you need to go and get your access tokens. So uh, you go and grab your access token via OAuth2 and then that access token uh, has uh, some information like what the audience will be, what the other API or endpoints need to, to be that I need to speak to and what my permissions are. And based on that, you, you as a developer, have to pass the access token downstream to whatever API. Somebody said upstream, I don't know why. It's downstream, upstream, both the same, right? You pass that token to somebody else, and then that somebody else is responsible for verifying the token, validating that it's for the right audience and other information like, has it expired? Is it still valid? Can I use it? And then based on that, you um, you can, again, do the necessary. That's probably an API or some other resource. So there you have it. Uh, OAuth is the uh, protocol responsible for acquiring and managing and passing uh, access tokens. OpenID Connect provides a way for you to understand what ID tokens are. So I hope that explains it.
0: <laughs> I think it was actually me that mentioned about the upstream versus downstream.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Were you? There, now I know. Like I remember somebody mentioned that when I was doing a .NET Core demo at some point, which actually has a... you know. Um, there's an API call that says enable downstream API calls. And you're like, but it should be upstream. I was like, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's another <laughs> API thing you need to call.
0: Well, I was curious, and I actually put a Twitter poll out mm-hmm. just to see oh, what you? people... What, not about that thing in particular, but okay. about what people referred to as upstream and what people refer to as downstream. Mm-hmm. And it was 50-50. And lots uh, of people were saying, it's upstream for this reason and yes. downstream for this reason. Okay. And it was kind of like... So there's no correct answer, it doesn't sound. I'll, def- I'll include a link to that tweet <laughs> in the show notes. But it was quite an interesting thread, and lots of people voted and replied uh, with different reasons. It was really interesting. Okay. So, um, what are the chances, though? It was two months ago at Donald Oxford when you did the identity talk
1: it was yes when I was demoing that and you're like no it should be called upstream <laughs> like fine I can go back to the product team and ask them why <laughs> they decided that it's similar to a, a poll I did for services and demons because some people call you know the headless applications are running as you know jobs somewhere demons where other people call them services and we were really uh, polarized within our team as well what should be called it was almost 5050 so there you have it
0: Nice, nice. So with the OAuth and OpenID Connect, mm-hmm. so am I right that this is all relates to the redirect you get when you're redirected to your identity provider, then you get your login page, yes. type in your username and password, not on your website, mm-hmm. on your B2C, like Azure AD website or Auth0 mm-hmm. or, or whatever provider you use. Yep. And then as part of that flow, you get redirected back. Correct. And th- th- that redirect is OAuth and then... OpenID Connect just adds the concept of knowing who you are.
1: Yeah, yeah. So obviously when you do the signing, it's over OpenID Connect. So uh, just to to explain how this thing works, people come to your website, they say, I want to log in. At that point, they get redirected to the identity provider. And the identity provider will take the username and password, will validate that it's correct, will authenticate you. And at the end, it will spit out an, an ID token, which is part of the OIDC RFC. And that information lands back into your website or your front-end solution, whatever it is, a mobile app, for example. And then there are libraries there that will do the validation, verification, maybe casting if they need to. And you're done. The nice thing about this is that in the old days, you would have to take the username and a password, do a call to your own database, validate that they're correct, do some comparison, and then return back that information. We had to store the information. Now it's all done outside your website, so you don't have to worry about PII. In, in response, you just get back a token. It's a JSON uh, web token that only has some like basic explanation about where it came from, who it was signed from, so you know that it came from Azure ID or whatever other provider, and then what your information is, what did you ask inside the, the token to be included. At minimum, there will be an email and your user ID, the, uh, the app ID, the tenant, like where it came from, from Azure ID, which tenant it came from, and what have
0: you. And with OpenID Connect, you get an ID, ID token. token? Yes. And an access token?
1: Well, it's part of the flow, right? So if, if if the configuration is, I want to sign in the user and also acquire an access token so I can later call you know, a downstream API, then that's part of the same flow. You don't have to worry about how it gets implemented behind the scenes. Yeah, so um, let's talk about refresh tokens because I think that's something that you asked before. So refresh tokens are... Um, part of the whole flow they're fairly transparent to developers if they use uh, the right library so unless you're rolling out your own oidc library open id connect library then refresh tokens are handling everything for you and, and what happens is tokens are issued with a specific expired time expiry date and uh, your library will be checking for that every time you need to do a call at some point it will expire and um it will either prompt the user to go and authenticate again, or it will issue a refresh token and will try to acquire a new access token for you. So it does happen behind the scenes. Uh, you don't really have to code for it. There are some cases where you might want to tap into that that information. There are cases where you might want to fiddle with the expiry times. So you know you might want to have a very short expiry time because you want your system to be super secure and always prompt the user. Let's let's say your HR site. You still have some very tight... Uh, log- or your bank may say, you know what? After five minutes, uh, boot out the user because you want to expire them and force them to uh, authenticate. Refresh tokens are also th- things that you don't see when you use things like Outlook or mobile apps or, you know, Teams where you sign in once and then behind the scenes, it just goes and gets a new token for you. So you don't have to log in all the time. It's... it it. it um, it's, it's about user experience. So it's very rare that I will have to, like I can't even remember logging into my Outlook on the phone. Uh, I did it once and then I never had to do it again. Periodically, although, you know, I can't remember the last time I signed in, but the other day I got a new prompt for a login. So that meant that I reached the end of my refresh period and I was prompted to sign in again, which is good periodically to uh, prompt the users. One of the challenges with uh, token lifetime is what happens if the user is it out of the organization. Let's say they're part of the Azure AD tenant, and suddenly you, know, you go to the office, something horrible happens, you get fired. But you're still signed in to all your things, and you still have access from home. One of the challenges there is how do we force these people out of the system? Because imagine you left the company, but you still have access to the HR side because you still signed in or whatever. So one of the things that we're looking as part of the identity provider system that we have or platform is token lifetime and how we can do continuous evaluation of that. So if you're not an Azure AD member anymore, we should expire all your tokens automatically. Right now you have to code for it or you have to implement your own logic. So that's one of the things. Other things that tokens have challenges with is proof of possession. How do you prove that you are who you say you are when you present a token? Like if I come into your machine and steal all your tokens and then start passing them around, what happens then? So uh, that's another thing that we're working to continuously add. I think there's some work on the pipeline. But as a developer, you know, the the bottom line is, I don't want you to know about these things. It's nice to know about the things that they they exist, right? There's a refresh token that takes place. So once my access token expires, I'll get another one or my users will get another one. But as a developer, you don't really want to think about what's happening with caching, what's happening with refresh, what happens when things expire. And if you're using the right libraries, uh, whether community libraries or our own libraries, then it becomes a lot easier. You know, you just implement the code and it's there for you to work out of the box.
0: <laughs> nice. I think it's always nice to get a bit of an understanding about these common terms, maybe not like the un- underlying mm-hmm. implementation, but yep. just like things like the, the workflows. Because even like with B2C, when you go in and you configure the workflows, you're still like using some of this terminology. So just having a basic understanding. Yes, correct. You mentioned about if someone leaves a company, that's what I thought refresh tokens were for, so that the access tokens were short lived and the refresh token had to go back to the identity provider
1: they are, but the minimum is like an hour, so it's not for uh, for days and days, although you can configure and change the lifetime, but even within that hour and then I have one more hour to access all the systems I want so uh that that's a challenge like that hour window. How do we uh, deal with that
0: i see i see
1: cool so it this actually didn't
0: take as long as I thought to cover all these. I think we've covered like most of these topics. Shall we jump into
1: Microsoft Identity Platform then? Sure. Yeah, I'm biased, obviously. So uh, <laughs> I this, thought you might this, be. <laughs> this is what I use day in day out. But you know, Microsoft Identity uh, the Identity Platform comes in two basic flavors. There are lots of like other scenarios that you might look into. But as a developer, when you come in, there's a decision tree that you have to make, and uh, that tree is basically two branches at the very top. One is I want to authenticate users for my line of business apps, my organizational users at Contoso, at whatever company I work for, at Microsoft. This is an Azure AD issue. So Azure Active Directory, where I go. If you are building anything that needs to bring external users, like a forum where you want people to register and manage their profile, a mobile game, a mobile app, a website that sells things, let's say Costco needs to uh, to give away for people to go and register, buy stuff, and then check out. This is where B2C comes into play. So business to consumer or business to customer, wh- whatever you want to call it, allows people to, or developers to implement at the very basic form, a username and password database where people sign in with their username and password. That can be their phone, that can be their email, and then a, a password that they decide to use and it comes with all the goodness of multi-factor authentication out of the box, so you don't have to implement that, it comes with conditional access, so I might say, you know what, I only want to operate in Australia, or I might want to only operate in the UK because of GDPR requirements, you can actually enforce that, and um, b also allows you to bring external identities, so if you want to enable your users to maybe sign in their Facebook account or their Google account, it provides that capability. We have pre-baked ones, uh, so you can configure them out of the box. But you can also bring any other OpenID Connect compliant endpoint. We had somebody building a tweets uh, social media kind of a platform, and he wanted their um, the users to sign in with their tweets account, so they didn't have to uh, you know create a new account or something else. They're already on tweets, why not? And that was uh, as simple as finding the tweets OpenID Connect endpoints, add them to BTC, and off you go. B2C delegates all that, so it's one endpoint. The users select how to sign in, and then that returns an access token, an ID token. So it's uh, you know all the complexity is inside B2C. Your application does need to change the code or add different providers as you grow the application.
0: Can you also connect B2C to another identity provider, for yeah. example, or, or yeah. zero? So you if could. You, if, you, if you're building like. A platform where you've got to support multiple tenants and mm-hmm. you've got to support multiple identity providers. Mm-hmm. Can you use this to just hook them all together?
1: Yeah, if you're well, if you're talking about multi-tenancy, then that's you know that's also possible via B2C or Azure AD. So that's another thing that you can consider. But anything that has an Open ID Connect endpoint and it's discoverable via a public endpoint, then it is fair game for B2C. Uh, we also had some weird scenarios where B2C was also used as a front end to Azure AD where, you know, they wanted to provide some flexibility where B2C became the endpoint to everything. And then they had some users setting it against Azure AD and then other users going through social media account. Uh, there are some very complex scenarios that we've seen people doing it. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. But, uh, yeah, with a greater power comes greater responsibility. So you can really screw up things or create some very complex scenarios. And we have some customers that do need some very heavy customization. But, you know, you start with the very basics and then you build on top of that. You don't have to worry about all that complexity behind the scenes.
0: Cool. And B2C, it's its its own tenant,
1: isn't it? Am I right with that? Yes, it is. Man, tenants, right? What is a tenant? I mean, that's that's one of the terminologies that really get people screwed up. So a tenant is a domain name that um, owns a set of data. Right, so you have you can have multiple Azure AD tenants, you can have multiple B2C tenants. The the complexity that comes or the confusion that usually happens is when you are inside Azure AD, sorry inside Azure the portal, and you say I want to go to my B2C tenant, or I want to manage my B2C you know resource, and then you suddenly jump out to a new page and it's a brand new tenant. And we're actually actively working on that experience right now because we do feel that it throws quite a few people off in like, why, how did I end up here? And you know how do I go back? But uh, you're right, uh, B2C, it's a different tenant. It's all different to your Azure AD for example. And it has different you know authority names. So you have to work out what the endpoint should look like inside your code, but they're all fairly well documented. But I agree that uh, that kind of tenancy terminology is something that is very idiomatic to identity providers and uh, tends to throw people off. So I apologize to everyone listening to the podcast about how we screwed up tenancy and stuff, but we're working actively to take your feedback and simplify things.
0: Yeah, I think that was one thing that did initially confuse me when I started using B2C. Like, mm-hmm. As you say, it's like, why am I suddenly in another portal? How do I get back? But then once I understood it and started thinking about it as just a separate login, it's a separate database, as in like, the B2C is just a database of users. Mm-hmm. And in, in my Azure subscription, it's not a service like a web app or a VM. It's slightly different. I think initially I was trying to think about it as something I can spin up like you would spin up a VM or Key Vault or something. And but it's not the same, is it?
1: It's not. Uh, although there is a lot of internal debate and uh, many customers have said like, why can I not spin up a BTC using ARM or Terraform or whatever? And this is also something that we are working on in, in improving, right? The automation of the tenancy and being able to, to, you know, as a company, being able to test things and deploy things and automate stuff. So stick with us while we're fixing all these. And we're, we're actively opening to anyone that has feedback from the largest customers to the smaller developers, the smallest, even in the developers that are using the system or want to use the system. We we take all that feedback and we prioritize accordingly. So 2021, we'll probably see quite a few changes in that space. There's a collective effort across multiple divisions in Microsoft to improve the identity experience even more.
0: Nice. I know one thing you've mentioned, I think you spoke about it when you spoke at Donald Oxford, was... Moving on to libraries now. I know we've got the old ADAL library, then MSAL, uh, but there's a new. Like talking about improving things, there's a new. Is it Microsoft Identity Web library, which
1: yeah, that uh, is ma- right, makes things that's right makes
0: things super simple. One line is apparently, I believe.
1: <laughs> I, 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 that's that's how I sell it. It's like a one line, and you can do anything <laughs> you want in some config settings. So obviously, it is a one line to start with, but uh, usually it's not that simple. I mean, it could be. Like if you're creating a very simple website that just signs in users and then you uh, make sure that these users have access to the right points of the website. But usually there's a little bit more uh, involvement in that, like trying to tap into OpenID Connect events. And you might already have a system that does things, so you might want to replicate that information, which is totally available to you. But if you're starting now, if you're in .NET Core 3.1 and later, then Web has simplified the things. And let, let me take a two minutes maybe to explain why. So right now, if you are building an ASP.NET app, when you authenticate, there used to be this thing called the ASP.NET identity system, right? Where you go into, you would go into Visual Studio, you would say, file new project, a web app, and then it would say, do you want to add authentication? Yes, I want to add authentication. So you would click that, it will present you with the Azure AD uh, settings, you would configure them, and lo and behold, your authentication is, is wired up and everything is working, perfect. And now you say, I want to access my API, right? How do I get tokens for that? Ooh, uh, my user is already authenticated, but I don't have access to the necessary library. So I need to download MSAL, the Microsoft Authentication Library, wire that up, and then go and access my tokens and get my tokens. And that was a pain because like, but I've already authenticated the user. Why do I need another library now to go and get my tokens? So it was very confusing. So what we did is, working, uh, we worked on a project to simplify that and unify that. So now you have Microsoft.den.web, which is built on top of MSAL. So you take a dependency on MSAL it out of the bat when you do file new project with authentication or do .NET CLI, uh, .NET new, uh, .auth, whatever. And the whole point there is that once you authenticate, you authenticate against Azure AD, but you now can also acquire tokens for accessing APIs. You don't have to download another library. We do, we do all the the middleware configuration for you up front, uh, and that frees you up from having to worry about how do I implement my token management, my token caching, my token acquisition, incremental consent, and what have you. So yes, it, it is a one-liner to do all that, and maybe two or three lines of code to do everything else. But it's way more more simplified than the older story that we had and it definitely has improved the uh, like it hidden away all the complexities behind the implementation details so i love that effort and hopefully we'll see this coming into the other languages like node and javascript and and java everybody that we show that to or gets super excited uh, they 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 want to see that and go and implement that uh, so you know if you have feedback like if you say i would, I would love to see that in python or go or ruby uh, for my solution then let us know because this is what we're here for, but it's been a fantastic step to disambiguating the complexities of identity within the .NET space.
0: Does that also include if you're doing server-to-server authentication as well?
1: Yes. Sorry, Microsoft Identity Web is only for ASP.NET uh, solutions. For anything else, you have to use Msal. So if you have a service, technically there's no user interaction there, so you can't really use Microsoft Identity .Web because it is .Web. But downloading MSAL and it's literally you know six or seven lines of code to create a confidential client and then authenticate the local system and then it can be like if it's a, a daemon or a service then you can use a certificate so you don't have to have client secrets stored within your application. We you want to eliminate the need for secrets, like we did for uh, Angular and single page apps, where we moved away from implicit flow that required a client ID and a client secret to using authorization flow with. Uh, pixie so now you uh, sign in there's a key exchange that happens between your solution and the identity provider and you don't have to worry about secrets that's a fantastic step towards more secure apps does um, implicit flow have to go anyway with
0: browsers stopping supporting third-party cookies
1: well we encourage people to move to uh, pixie uh, regardless right although it does complicate things but i would say uh, if you can move your application to to using Pixie, then that's the way to go. Uh, if you're using msal.js, which uh, was our uh, V1 that had implicit flow, the upgrade to V2 uh, is seamless. So you don't have to rewrite any code. It works out of the box. You just take away the client secret from your configuration and off you go. Super nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it might have changed now, but um, when we're doing quite a bit of server-to-server stuff, we're using B2C for the actual main user login. hmm but then for the server-to-server, we're just using Azure AD. Right. And we've got some .NET services and some Node services. Mm-hmm. And for the Node services, I seem to remember having to go back to ADAL library because MSAL didn't support that. But I don't know whether that's changed now.
1: That is changing. In fact, we have a public preview of uh, JS MSAL. So if you're building Node apps today, uh, we do provide you with the ability to build electron apps or Node apps uh, using MSAL. And again, that that consistency of libraries across the the whole ecosystem means that, you know, the code that you write uh, can remain, like the the patterns that you have for writing the code between .NET and Node can be very, very consistent, right? And that is fantastic for our audience. Uh, So, uh, you know, Node should be coming out of uh, public preview soon. But you can use it today, you can provide feedback, it's on GitHub, so if you search for MSAL JS node, uh, the repo that you land on has the announcement at the top that is a node version with samples and code and documentation, so it's fully there. One of the things that, uh, like you mentioned, you're using Azure AD behind the scenes for services. Are these services running on Azure?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, well, um, and Kubernetes within Azure. Within Azure. Well, some, some of them are, some of them aren't, but yeah, we're basically registering app registrations and... Mm-hmm. Uh, which it's probably something we should talk about, and then yeah, so we're registering both the client and the server um, as separate uh, registrations, then yep. setting up the the roles, and just just using that to um, yeah to speak to each other.
1: So the the one thing I like to talk about that it's not very uh, well advertised or as well advertised about the Microsoft Identity Platform is the all the other things that you can do with the Microsoft Identity Platform, as in. Secure service to service communication in Azure, a secure development on your local machine, things like managed identity and service principles that allow you to, you know, create very specific, narrow scoped accounts that you can use as service accounts to allow services to communicate with each other. And in some cases, combining things like key vault also means that it eliminates the need to have secrets or keys or anything else stored within your application because it's all secured by uh, Microsoft Identity, and all you have to do as a developer is use the right libraries to go and pull those secrets from either your managed Identity local system, uh, if I need to speak to my SQL server, or if I need to go and grab a secret that I really need to use, like let's say an API to weather. Uh, you do a call to an API that you know gives you weather information. That's external to you. You still need to have your key. How do you store your key securely? You store it in Key Vault, and then you use managed Identity to go and grab that key, that secret in real time and then pass it to whatever call you're making. So your your solution as a developer is uh, more secure. As a company, you don't have to worry about passing those secrets around. You don't have them in source control. Those keys can be rotated by your IT admins without you as a developer having to worry what will happen. So it's a, it's, it's a great solution. And also the DevOps story, which, uh, you know, we did a .NET Conf session this year for when we announced .NET 5. We're part of the, the conference uh, sessions. and. We love building the story. We had managed identity service principles with Terraform, with uh, ARM templates, with Key Vault. We had a uh, managed identity running outside of Azure using Azure Arc. So, you know, if you join your device, your PC right now, or your server in Azure Arc, it, it looks and feels like an Azure VM. And that automatically gives you the managed identity, which you can use to run services without having any secrets. And that, that VM can live on AWS or your on-prem, but from an Azure perspective, from a Microsoft identity perspective, it still feels like a domain joint device and you get all the goodness. So there are so many. I mean, we could probably do three days worth of uh, episodes <laughs> here about all these amazing things they can do with the platform. But uh, the fact that you get them all for free as a developer, just using the, a couple of libraries or your own libraries, you don't have to use our libraries. Roll uh, as you like or come as you are, as we say on our slide. So how does the platform actually know that a
0: service is who they say they are? Presumably, there's some kind of cryptography going on, which ensures that a request can only come from that single host machine?
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a way to set it up. So if you are talking about Azure Arc, there's an agent that you install on that machine. That agent is explicitly trusted by Azure AD to be what it's supposed to be, and then it has you know all the... Cryptography happening behind the scenes. So you run a simple script, uh, whether it's a Linux or a, or a Windows machine, and it allows it to attach to the domain, and then it provides you with you know similar capabilities like uh, public endpoints that you can hit to get information about a device, or sorry, that's a local endpoint that is a well-known endpoint, or a local endpoint that you can use to find information about your managed identity, and that is the implicit trust between the VM or the machine that you just attached to Azure Arc and Azure AD. Again, this happens behind the scenes without you having to worry about that. Azure Arc is the service that guarantees that security between the systems. You as a developer, all you have to do is just leverage the local managed identity to go and have fun and build secure systems. And then you
0: can use, I think you mentioned before, Key Vault. So literally your app can do a one-liner and without any passwords or anything and just get stuff from Key Vault and interact with Key Vault. Yeah, really nice.
1: I think there's a there's a very small caveat, which it, although I think we fixed that one, I think for Azure Arc devices, which I think I'm going back into that, there was a little bit of code that had to be added because the process is not exactly the same. You have to, in effect, what happens behind the scenes is you do a call to a local file. That file doesn't exist the first time, so it throws an exception, and then it goes and creates that file with the, the token for you. And then the second time that you do the call, it actually provides the information, and we demo that live. So that that logic, that loop, had to be coded into the Azure SDKs. So if you say I want to use the Azure Identity library with Key Vault, then Azure Identity knew that you were running on Arc, and then you would say, you know, try to find a locally signed-in user, and it will scan through the local accounts. So it will say, oh, I found a managed identity here. Oh, that's a different managed identity. That's an Arc enabled. Azure Identity, I'll do the the necessary for you. It's hidden away, so you don't have to worry about the implementation, but in effect, Azure Identity will handle the authentication to the system, and then will pass the appropriate tokens to the call, whatever it's a key vault or a a SQL service or a storage account, it does that for you. It's a fantastic experience. If you've never done anything with Azure Identity, it's so liberating for both developers and organizations since all these keys, all these tokens are handled by the identity provider. Uh, for mass identities, we're the keys automatically for you. So you never have to worry about expiration of keys or what happens. And it's all automatic. But if you want to have full control of the mass identity, because there are two flavors. One is the one that gets provisioned with your service. So if you have a web app or a key vault or something else, then you can enable the identity on that. And then automatically that's system assigned identity. So the service creates an identity against Azure AD. And then it, that identity gets assigned to the service. But if you delete the service, the identity dies with it, which can be a problem uh, because you might say, I want to use the same identity for my Azure web apps and my Azure functions so they can both call into my SQL server and needs to be super secure. like It only has very, very limited RBAC permissions. You can also have a user-defined managed identity and that, that in effect, allows you to control the lifecycle of the service. So even if the service dies, your managed identity is a, it's an object inside Azure AD and you have full control over it. Even just
0: dealing with Key Vault before, when
1: not using Managed Identity and mm-hmm. having to
0: deal with client IDs and client secrets, where do you store that? You're you're talking with Key Vault, which is designed to store secrets. But yep. then you've got you've got this other secret. How do you store that? So exactly. This just sounds amazing for just getting rid of that problem.
1: hmm I think uh, ASP.NET, if we're talking about ASP.NET, had had this uh, solution resolved. Even two, three years ago, there was a key vault provider inside ASP.NET that would allow you to go and acquire keys for your key vault without really configuring it up front. But it worked differently now with the uh, mass identity. It's all available to you, both in ASP.NET, uh, so not both, but any any uh, library, any Azure SDK library that I can actually use it. So Node, Python, Go, I remember we have so many languages, Java. They they all support that flow.
0: And if you enable our back on a Kubernetes cluster, do you get identities with that
1: as well? Yep, you should look into that. <laughs> and I think uh, you get uh, you get identities per cluster or per pod, so you can also have a lot more refined control about which pod is calling which service and with what permissions. I'm not big at Kubernetes, so I will upfront say that. But we have some fantastic people coming on our 45 stream. To, to stream about Kubernetes with Microsoft Identity, and you know you can always catch up on YouTube if you want to find the details on that.
0: We can put any links to sure. your shows as well in the show notes. Perfect. So we've spoken a lot about ASP.NET, mm-hmm. and you mentioned Electron, but that's web under the hood anyway, even though that's a desktop app. What is sure. the story for like normal desktop apps and mobile apps and things?
1: Uh, again, MSAL is your uh, the way to go. In fact, any Open ID Connect library that you can use for the framework of your choice. Will work. So if you're building UWP or Xamarin apps or a WPF, WCF, anything in fact can use these libraries, right? We do give you a way to securely authenticate and manage your tokens and do anything else you need with our libraries. So there's, there's a very good story there. In fact, I've done quite a few demos using Xamarin with MSOL to authenticate against both Azure AD and get some graph. Data MS Graph data or using BTC to just simply register and authenticate users. So both an intranet and an extranet or public facing app.
0: Say so you did like a WPF app, mm-hmm. what would that look like to the user? We've spoken about OpenID Connect where you get redirected to a login page by the identity provider. You still get the same. Have you got an embedded web page in your app to do that, or um, does it open a browser?
1: Yeah, you need to have access to the web, right? I think uh, what happens is you use the system browser or a web view. Uh, And you you can also define how that will look like. Even Like for Xamarin, you can also say, I want to have an embedded web view or I want to use the system browser. And then based on that, it will will do the appropriate uh, handoff. But if I remember I did a WinForms or a WebForms app, like very old stack, I was like, how can I stick uh, Microsoft identity? That, that's, my, <laughs> th- that's, that's my motto these days. What can I stick identity into? Like, can I go to some very old .NET 1 library and see what I can do with it? So console, I don't think I've done WPF, but it should work in the exact same way. The only difference there, rather than trying to get the currently signed in user in the current system, which was the de facto way of doing it in the past, You delegate that to Azure AD, opens the page and brings it back, and off you go. And we have a lot of samples on GitHub that you can go and find all these different workflows where you have a WPF that calls into an API that calls into Graph or SQL. So the whole flow end-to-end. Because in most scenarios, you don't have just a single app. It's uh, it's multiple services that talk to each other. And having that kind of end-to-end example and workflow and seeing it in action is nice. So we, it's, it's definitely doable.
0: So all this amazing stuff that we now get done for us as part of Azure AD and the B2C platform, saving us tons of time and money. This leads to an obvious question. How much does this actually cost?
1: It's free. If you have Azure AD or Office, Office 365, it's free for you. Obviously there are different tiers. So as you go up, if you need to have uh, more advanced uh, requirements, then you have to change tiers. But uh, for people that write apps that are public-facing and they want to sign in users, uh, B2C is free for the first 50,000 logins per month, right? So that's a significant number to think about. And then it goes into pennies, literally pennies once you hit that limit. And then it grows, obviously, that the cost grows. But there's, uh, the benefits totally outweigh the fact that you don't have to manage that security. So you can pay, I can't remember the numbers, there's a cost calculator, but... For B two C, it's significantly cheaper than anything else out there in the market, and it grows, and it's scalable, and it's secure. So, as a business, if you if you hit fifty thousand logins, I think that's a good problem to have to start paying a few, <laughs> uh, you know, a few pounds to go over that limit. So that means they have a successful model. So uh, we haven't had anyone saying, "Well, well, we're fifty one thousand, and it's a bit of a problem for us to pay." It's a good problem to have, and you get all the support from Microsoft. We have teams that are dedicated to solving problems. So I think starting for free is fantastic. And then as you grow your business, you know, the identity provider can grow with you.
0: Yeah, and I think if you're going over that and we're talking pennies anyway, then... Mm-hmm. Sure. I know, without mentioning names, another identity provider, which is amazing at their free tier, suddenly gets very expensive when you need anything over their free tier. Which, yeah. And it sounds like that's just not the case with Azure AD and B2C, which is quite nice.
1: It's it's surprising when people have some really expensive tiers, like for Azure, they have like enterprise agreements or they have Office 365 for say 15,000 seats in their organization. And we walk in and they haven't realized that they had an Azure AD solution for free to them or a B2C available to them as part of their Azure subscription. And, you know, sometimes the looks that we get are just incredible. So M365 or Azure subscriptions come with an Azure AD tenant behind the scenes you have to manage those users somehow, so it's always crazy to think about, we actually have a solution and we haven't used it, why not? So one of the things that you know developers should ask before they start implementing anything is, do we already have something out there that we can use out of the box? Very cool. Well, I think we've
0: covered like tons of different stuff now. So is there anything else you wanted to mention before we we move on to dev tips?
1: Yes, I have a good dev tip. Hopefully nobody else has used that. But we covered quite a few things. And again, we just scraped the surface. But if people want to get started uh, with Max of Adenti, we have some really fantastic docs. We'll include the links on how to get in touch with us. We have we have discourse. We have Twitter we have emails, reach out to me if you have any questions. Me and my teammates will be more than happy to help you out. But uh, hopefully now you know why you shouldn't be implementing your own solution and uh, why you should hopefully choose Max of for your next project.
0: I know in our shared Google Docs, there's a whole stream of links that you put in there. So there's yeah. lots to share in the show notes. Couldn't remember I
1: did that. Man. Uh, so <laughs> do, you, do you want my developer tip? Should I go with it? Go for it. Uh, this is for people that uh, work with XML and JSON quite frequently and they have to create classes around them. And sometimes it's a bit tricky because, you know, you have to understand what the, it can be, very, very complex structures and you can't remember how to do it or you don't know how to do it. And I, I can't even remember how to create a class out of a JSON file that maps to the, the right schema. So if you are using Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code, Uh, Inside Visual Studio, there's a build-in functionality that you can uh, go into a a brand new class or any file. Uh, You can right-click into the Edit on the menu, and down there, there's a special edit, and in there, you can do Paste XML as class or Paste JSON as class, and as you paste that, as long as you have your XML or JSON in memory, so you you got on the clipboard, it will actually go and create a class for you with all the settings mapped. So all the fields inside your JSON or XML and the very complex structures of these things will manifest themselves correctly. VS Code doesn't do it as well, and there's an extension to do it, but I found the last time I used it, that it a heaps of code. VS does it so much better because it just creates a POCO, a plain old class, nothing else, and off you go. So that's my tip. Nice. I do like dev productivity tips. One command can save you hours. Days. I hate XML like mapping them back and forth.
0: <laughs> so, for my dev tip, I was trying to think of something that was related. And I was surprised we didn't actually touch on it when we talked about JWT tokens. But there's a few, well, I don't think we did anyway, but there's, there's a few different websites jwt.io, jwt.ms, which is presumably a Microsoft one. And you can literally just paste in your access identity token. And you can see all the claims. So as mentioned earlier, the claims are key value pairs, like just metadata. And you can see all this listed in. You can see various other stuff about the token. And like when I'm doing authentication stuff, obviously via a library like B2C, uh, I find this really useful to just be able to like know what's in my tokens. So I can put that in the show notes too.
1: That is a very good tip. In fact, if you are doing app registrations, you can define JWT.ms as one of the redirect URIs so you can get your tokens and make it directly to that, so it opens the page for you, and you don't have to copy-paste that.
0: Wow, I did not know that. There
1: you go. <laughs> <laughs> You're spoiling us with these dev tips. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about to the mess. damn it. I mean, uh, you had a better tip than me, but uh, hopefully they were, they're both useful. So thank you for doing that.
0: No problem, no problem at all so this is probably going to be the very last episode of the year and uh well, it's been quite a, a funny old year wasn't it so ho- hopefully um 2021 will show some light at the end of the tunnel although i saw on twitter mentioned that apparently 2021 is the year that mad max was set so uh...
1: <laughs> it can go both ways with the new uh with the new vaccinations right
0: yeah don't know don't know we'll see how it goes we'll see how Fingers it goes crossed. So I'll definitely include a link to all the things we've spoken about today in the show notes, and those will be available on com. And so that, are just a massive thank you for joining me on the show,
1: Christos. Thank you for having me and for um, you know, for making time to speak to me. I really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, for being the last episode of the year, closing the year. Thank you. Yeah,
0: the, the podcast's very first year hopefully we'll carry on for many years to come and apologies about all the interruptions from the kids as well no man kids are fun <laughs> which will be cut out for our listeners but anyway <laughs> so that's the show we've actually covered an awful lot though that's
1: brilliant see i told you we'll have enough time to cover everything i speak fast <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, because we've stopped it many times, I don't actually know how long we've gone because the timer just says fourteen minutes. Yeah, so, so I
1: think we d- we probably have about an hour and ten minutes, or an hour and fifteen minutes of uh, content. If you trim it, maybe it come down to one ten, one seven, but that's that's decent, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I, I, it probably won't trim too much because, from at least from your point of view, there were, I didn't hear many ums and ahs or anything that I have to cut out,
1: so it was quite quite clean. Yeah, I would have. I would hate to think that I have to clean all the M's and ums because I say them quite frequently. I need to improve on that. No, no, you're fine. I was watching uh, Dylan Bitty. I was watching Dylan Bitty this morning in one of his NDC closing keynotes. And this guy did not say a single M or arm in the whole session. I was mesmerized. I was just looking at his uh, speaking skills. I was like, damn, man, he's next level. But uh, for me, it's, it's always the pre-processing, the, uh, it's, it's a second language for me, right? And being able to be as fluent and eloquent as you are in your native language, it's hard. Although in saying that, I can't even speak Greek as well as speak English now because I rarely speak them and I can't say any technical terms. So that will be out of the question. And I struggle with my Greek when I have to go beyond the basic conversations because I don't do it frequently.
0: You're really putting me to shame saying that this is your second language and you speak it better than I do, which which doesn't take much, to be honest.
1: (laughs) Well, no, 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 no. Don't don't ever say that. There are a lot of um, colloquialisms, as they call them, that unless you live in the country, you'll never pick up. So if you learn English or any language outside the the, the country that is spoken at, it becomes very hard. You can be super grammatically correct, but it will make no sense. Uh, and there's a, there's a fantastic TED Talk that somebody did, a, a linguist that did, and she had a nice example where she said, like, how, how how can you tell that somebody is not native? And she was saying, last night we, uh, we cooked dinner or we cooked chicken and then my husband washed the dishes. And it all sounds grammatically correct. But she said that if somebody from that same country was saying that, she would probably say, last night we made chicken, we didn't cook chicken. It's grammatically correct, but make chicken is probably more appropriate. And then my husband did the disease. You don't really do the disease, but it sounds right. Like you can't say, uh, happy Christmas. It sounds a little bit weird. You say, Merry Christmas. There are all these things and details that you, unless you live in the country, you don't pick up. And if you learn it outside the country, you're grammatically correct. You will always be grammatically correct. But when you hear me saying that, it's like, yeah, he's like... Inside your brain, something goes like, yeah, "He's not. He's not from here. He hasn't lived here, or something." So, uh, yeah, having lived in in the UK for twenty years, you pick these things up. But again, it's hard to sound native. And I have my Greek, Scottish, accent, which also makes things a lot more horrible. <laughs> but it's fine. Uh, your accent's a lot better than mine, that's for sure. But going, not, back, going
0: back to the ums and ahs and things, yeah. there's there's lots of not not just ums and ahs, but mannerisms that I have in my own voice which I didn't mm-hmm. realize until because I've got to listen back you hear your voice yes yeah so I'm editing I've got these in I'm chopping out ums and ahs and things like I stutter more than I thought I did and so quite often I would say a few words of a sentence and then without knowing it start the sentence again and say it another way but mm-hmm. I do that more than I thought I did okay and then yours is really clear so I don't think yours is going to take much editing at all but some guests for example like lots of I means, mm. and, you know, yeah, means.
1: you know, I mean, yeah. I, I, I actually took lessons for public speaking when I was back in the UK. I had a coach and one of the things he said is speaking slowly is key. Very successful speakers will speak very slowly because he said to me, imagine if you have 60 minutes and you, have, and you speak at, I don't know, 100 words per second or per minute. That means, I don't know, 12,000 words that I have to remember, memorize, and practice for that same session. Now, I said, imagine if you're speaking at 60 words per second, and now you have 60,000 uh, or 6,000 words to say in that same hour. And then he talked about pauses, and he said, every time you try to say MR or an R, or you know, or we were working on this. He said, pause, and pause even more, and pause until it hurts. Because in your brain, you'd be like, my God, everyone is just thinking that I fell now. And he's like, it sounds totally normal to people that are listening to you. But if you speak too fast, obviously, you're... And sometimes I do when I do uh, sessions or meetups, I, like, I will be out of breath. I'll be cut off halfway through because I run out of air. So I was like, damn, man, I need to speak slower. But uh, I get super <laughs> excited. So I go very fast and I say all these things and I, I have it in my mind anyway, but slowly. You just need to speak slower. So you'll you'll find out as you slow down, and it's hard to do, it takes a lot of practice. Uh, You'll have less uh, stuttering, you will have to start your sentences a lot less, and what have you, but obviously I'm not the best one to teach about these things, I'm just saying what other people told me, and I'm still trying to fix myself. So there you have it.
0: Well also, people that listen to podcasts have them on one and a half speed, so that's even faster as well. True, true.
1: I mean I don't do not do pro side videos on less than uh, one and a half, same for LinkedIn Learning, because they speak very slowly. That's good for people who are not native or haven't lived in that country and they have to pick up those things. It's the same as reading a book. I read very slowly because I read every single word. So I don't do skimming or scanning. Whereas my daughter, can, like she said to me, I finished the chapter. I'm like, how, how the hell did you finish the chapter? There were so many words in here. But she's, she's, uh, she's uh, English first and then Greek second. So she's, she reads much faster than I do. I think also reading about like speed reading, a lot of the time you're not
0: looking at every single word. True. And also, I know one of them is sub mm-hmm. where a lot of people would read and in the head say out each word, and that really slows you down. But, but then if you can get away from that, then you can read at the speed of thought.
1: I don't know if I can do it for my second language. Maybe I'm doing it for Greek because I don't have to think about it. But for English, I actually read to myself. So, it's as you said, sub vocalization. I didn't even know it was a term, but I have to read them because otherwise, if I go too fast, I may, I may lose meanings. Or I do translation, right? It, it translates to you all the time, it's just super fast, which is insane when you think about it. But it, it's part of the process. It's fun when I switch between languages as well. So, I'm speaking Greek to my wife, and the next instance, I'll be speaking Greek to somebody else, uh, English to somebody else, and I can switch back and forth. So, that also happens, which is crazy. And the kids can also do it, but not as well. So this, uh, they're, they're, I call them pre-processing, for, especially for English, where you have to say something, you have to plan in advance. You know, sometimes when I have to make a very important call, I will actually make the call in my head before I even pick up the, the phone to talk because I need to make sure I have everything right. It's crazy.
0: I can't imagine like dealing with two languages, though, just switching between the two. I know um, Anna's my wife's brother, mm-hmm. is married to an Italian. No. And like he can speak Italian, but then the kids are, like, have been raised to speak both. Right. So yeah. they, they, they like swap. You, you mm-hmm. always tell well, when we've got a family gathering, well, obviously <laughs> not at the moment, but when when we did have a family gathering, then when the kids were told off, it was in Italian, but then yes. all the conversations were in English.
1: It is. We, we tend to tell off our kids in Greek as well. It sounds so much better when you say it in Greek. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, swearing is also different. Like I, I will swear in English, but if I really want to be like, if I really mean it, it might be in Greek. And um, uh, yeah, the kids are also bilingual, but I actually know three languages. So I was going to be an interpreter. That was my first career path. I wanted to become an interpreter for the European Union. So Greek, English, and French, and I was fluent in all three of them. Obviously, if you don't use it, you lose it. So my French now are subpar. But there was a point in my life I could speak French better than my English, which was scary. But my English was not as good as it is now. So that's the other uh, side of the coin. But three languages and, uh, you know, you do one and two, then it becomes a force of habit. The crazy stuff is people that know seven or eight languages. That's just insane. So
0: is that C sharp, JavaScript, um, (laughs) Perl, (laughs) Ruby.
1: That 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 counts. That counts as well. It's (laughs) it's the same, the same basics, the same foundation, and it's just syntax uh, sugar, right? You do the same thing: loops and ifs and conditionals and lambdas, and you're done.
0: (laughs) Well, going back to the speed reading thing, so Mm -hmm. I did a bit of reading up on speed reading, and one of the things I read was: do you know about the comprehension? so basically if you're imagine you're driving a car Mm -hmm. at 40 Mm -hmm. down down the lane down a road it's relaxed you're you've got your stereo you're playing with your stereo you're looking out the window you're looking around so you're not really that focused if you're driving down country roads at 120 miles per hour you're Mm. razor sharp focused you're taking in every single detail yeah and it's like that with speed reading as well so if you if you get into the habit of get past the sub vocalization fast as like basically get into a habit of reading faster then that automatically makes you focus deeper
1: when you when you're slow reading
0: because you're going faster
1: ah okay
0: well often if I don't try and speed read nice to read slowly my mind wanders off to yes. what I did that day, and then I have to keep on rereading the page. But if I intentionally, uh-huh. if I'm in the habit of reading faster, then that happens much less.
1: So how do you switch it off then? How do you switch off the uh, sub-vocalization?
0: Um, th- there's a few different tips. Like, so one of them is starting off by humming whilst you read.
1: Also, well, you distract yourself from, by ha- by doing a continuous humming so you can't really speak to yourself and then
0: or counter it out loud and just, just start, to, obviously you can't do that ongoingly, but just try saying one, two, three, whilst you're reading, just as a, not not when you're reading something you're trying to understand, but yes. as a practicing session.
1: Yeah, more like a practice, like take this paragraph, try to read it without you uh, sub-vocalizing, interesting.
0: Yeah. And also just being aware that you're doing it and practice and try, and if you find yourself doing it, try and stop. And also okay. read faster. Um, if, you, if you make yourself, if you make yourself, like put your finger on the page uh-huh. and use it as a marker, and make yourself read faster. If you're making yourself read faster than you can sub-vocalize, then you can't sub-vocalize. True, true. Yeah. It's just, it's just practice and yeah. read, 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 and it'll get faster and faster and faster.
1: I like it. At the age of 40, I'll try to 42. I'll try to uh, stop subvocalizing. So that'll be that'll be some exercise to do. But yeah, I'll try it. Sounds good. Nice. Thanks, man. Should we include all this in the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I don't see why not. I don't see why not. That would be like, uh, you know, talking about general stuff, not technology. So it's always a-